The Going Viral podcast from Health Ed shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the Health Ed app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to Health Ed's Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 17th of February. Professor Nancy Baxter explains why the pandemic is not over, why we can't afford to relax, and why the political narrative may not be as scientific as we would like. She explains the important questions regarding boosters and how to better safeguard the workplace. Greetings. Um, I'm Nancy Baxter. I'm the head of the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. Uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about uh, COVID updates. I've been asked to cover a lot of topics, so these will be quick shots, but will hopefully give you some, um, some idea of what's happening uh, and what you need to be aware of uh, that's upcoming. Uh, I've been also asked to do a little bit of forecasting. So um, uh, I, I must say that uh, I don't want you to hold me to this, and I know this is being recorded, um, but I'll try and kind of think a little bit uh, uh, outside the box about what, what to expect uh, in the near future in terms of COVID. So first I'm going to talk about boosters, I'm going to talk about why, who's new, um, what and how many. First, in terms of why, um, this is the death, uh, the deaths per day in Australia, and I'm sure all, as all of you are aware, although the Omicron wave uh, is less severe in terms of the um, individual effect of Omicron on, on people, uh, as a society and as a population, uh, Omicron has had a major impact on Australia with a record number of deaths in Australia, and certainly um, the rate of death uh, from Omicron in Australia is very similar to uh, that of the rest of the world, uh, unlike with previous uh, waves of, uh, of COVID where we have been largely protected. So Omicron is a serious thing, uh, and obviously um, we need to protect ourselves and uh, are uh, particularly those most at risk against it. We also know that immunity wanes. So this just shows uh, in the UK uh, over time, um, the increase of, um, uh, of cases um, that occurred uh, as immunity waned and uh, Delta came in um, and uh, showed what happened in the red line uh, with uh, boosters. So as in the increase in boosters occurred, at the same time, the number of cases declined. Uh, and this is because of the waning immunity. Um, so we know that the immunity uh, for uh vaccinations of COVID-19, uh, immunity wanes, particularly humoral immunity, so the amount of circulating antibody we have, which is what primarily protects us uh, against uh, infection and symptomatic infection. So you see the, the dark uh, squares uh, are the uh, waning immunity over time uh, with um, for Delta, the circles, the lighter circles are for Omicron. And so you can see even for Delta, the vaccines uh, faded in terms of the waned in terms of their immunity, uh, but for Omicron, it's much more marked, whereby uh, for particularly for AstraZeneca, there's essentially a, no uh, immunity to transmission over time. This radically changes with boosting. You have a far greater uh, 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 immunity to transmission and to symptomatic disease uh, with boosting, although this too wanes. 
Um, and that's important in terms of uh, stopping the, uh, the current outbreak of Omicron. We need to stop transmission. But this is also important in terms of stopping hospitalization, so stopping the, the, um, uh, the serious consequences of a COVID transmission. So here we see the waning of immunity. So in the first um, set of, of uh, uh, graphs, the waning of immunity that occurs uh, over time uh, for even hospitalization and serious illness uh, with the uh, two, core, two initial primary vaccine uh, and this changes again radically with boosting. So with your booster, um, you see a, uh, uh, the effect go back uh, almost to what it was initially, actually more than it was initially in some cases. Um, so boosting, very important, and it's important in terms of stopping the Omicron wave or, or mitigating the Omicron wave, both in terms of transmission overall, but also in terms of um, the consequences of transmission. And this is what we see in the UK. They've done some estimates looking at the number of lives that had the number of hospitalizations that have been avoided um, by making sure the booster was in place. Uh, with the red line uh, being the predicted and the um, uh, the blue line being the actual observed uh, observed uh, hospitalizations uh, due to uh, due to the. Um, uh, due to COVID uh, uh, with boosting. So uh, marked decrease in hospitalization because of the booster. So this is in the UK where they were boosting people much earlier than we were. Um, and so this brings us to the issues in Australia right now, which are kind of the, the booster stroll out. Um, so similar to the vaccine stroll out where it took a long time to get the vaccines to people, um, because of supply issues. We see in terms of the boosting, um, you know, basically I would say that uh, Omicron has taken the world by surprise. Uh, um, obviously we didn't even know this existed before November 26th. So all of our boosting plans, um, you know, which made a lot of sense at the time with the six month cutoff, kind of were, were set into disarray. Um, so what is happening now is that uh, we are, we are um, slowly boosting uh, people. Uh, and um, so in terms of the boost are actually having an impact uh, on the Omicron wave. We're starting to see it, um, but when we get to a higher boosting rate, uh, we're going to see a much better effect of a boosting on actual transmission as well as um, the risk of serious illness. Unfortunately, um, to get 80% boosted in Australia, we're not going to get there until March 30th and for 90% uh, not till May 10th. And in some places, particularly the Northern Territories, this is going to be far more delayed. So obviously boosting faster um, would have been uh, to our benefit and boosting as fast as we can at this point, um, still to our benefit. Um, but, uh, but obviously uh, challenged by the, um, the rapid presentation of Omicron, as well as, and I'll talk about this a bit later, uh, the failure to understand the urgency of the situation. So who is new? So what's been new since uh, you've last heard about, uh, about uh, COVID? Um, well, there have been a few changes in terms of ATAGI recommendations. So as of January 31st, now everyone 18 and older who are more than three months since the second dose of their vaccine are now considerable, is considered eligible for their uh, COVID booster. So this means uh, on that date, more than 4 million additional people uh, were eligible for their booster, uh, meaning almost everyone is now eligible um, that's over 18. Um, and so that's going to keep all of the GP practices very busy in terms of getting all these folks boosted.
Now on February 3rd, the recommendation was also made that Pfizer uh, could be given to 16 to 17 year olds who are more than three months uh, after their primary dose. Uh, and um, so that kind of adds to the number of people uh, that where booster is recommended. Uh, and the Pfizer booster has been found to be very safe in that age group uh, without a um, substantially high, uh, what's been found in other countries, it's not a high rate of myocarditis. On February 11th, um, the uh, ATAGI changed the recommendations in terms of uh, the um, uh, considerations of vaccination, um, calling um, individuals who uh, did not have a booster and are more than six months after their primary course to not be up to date. So to be considered up to date with vaccination, you need to have um, your primary course and a booster if you're more than six months after your primary course. This is this is a shift. It's a shift in wording. So it's a shift in wording from um, you know, complete uh, up to date from um, completed the vaccination course. Um, but it is a, a meaningful change and hopefully will help encourage people to complete their vaccination course. In terms of um, uh, individuals who are recovering from COVID, the recommendations of ATAGI have changed from allowing six months, a maximum of six months after uh, people who have been uh, infected with COVID get need to get vaccinated to four months. So that's been a change. Uh, but really people who've been infected with COVID uh, can go for their booster uh, um, you know, as quickly as, as one month or even with no delay, just uh, when they're um, no longer symptomatic. So what? So what's what's new in terms of boosting? Well, one thing that's new is the TGA has approved the AstraZeneca booster. Um, and so this is not the recommended booster. The recommended booster is an mRNA booster, so Pfizer or uh, Moderna. Um, but it has been approved for boosting in individuals where um, they've had anaphylaxis or some other type of reaction to the mRNA uh, vaccines, or, um, or they will only have AstraZeneca booster. Um, it's not based... The recommendation is not based on you know, a, a large number of trials, um, but there are a few key studies that show that the AstraZeneca booster uh, is effective. So this is one um, that was looking over time at, uh, at individuals who were uh, vaccinated, looking at differences in um, time intervals in the primary uh, course of vaccination uh, and uh, immunogenicity, as well as uh, boosters. And so with AstraZeneca. And what this showed, uh, if you look at the top panel, uh, it showed in terms of antibody production, uh, with the booster, you have a um, significant increase in antibody production for people who've had you know, two doses of AstraZeneca followed by an AstraZeneca booster. Uh, and then in the bottom panel, this is the uh, cellular immunity, um, the, the, the measure of cellular immunity. So your, 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 your T cells, your killer T cells. Uh, and what it shows is that not a great uh, effect on that, but not a huge decline either. And so that's generally what we think uh, of, of uh, the boosters is um, um, they prime both the um, uh, humoral immunity, the antibodies, as well as cellular immunity, your killer T cells, um, but um, but that it, it the Im, Im, uh, immunity is much more maintained uh, with the uh, cellular immunity than it is with the uh, humoral immunity, uh, effective in both. So um, AstraZeneca appears to be effective in terms of use as a booster. 
Um, this is the uh, CoveBoost trial, which looked at uh, patients who had had um, different primary vaccinations, uh, so a um, uh, AstraZeneca or an mRNA primary vaccination, and looked at the effect of, um, of the booster, so the different types of boosters. So tested a number of uh, vaccines as boosters to be able to compare and look at the effectiveness of it. So um, uh, important information. So what we see, this is the first circle is uh, a uh, AstraZeneca booster. Um, the second circle is a Pfizer booster. And the third, third circle is a Moderna booster in terms of antibody um, production. Or, uh, um, and, uh, and what you can see is that all of these um, boosters do show uh, an effect in over kind of no booster in terms of uh, neutralizing antibodies, um, but that this is a stronger effect uh, when the second, when the booster dose is Pfizer or Moderna. So all are effective, but Pfizer and Moderna seem to be more effective in terms of uh, antibody neutral neutralization. Of course, this is not uh, looking at COVID infection. So AstraZeneca seems to have effect as a booster, um, but would not be recommended over uh, an mRNA vaccine. In terms of mRNA vaccines, one of the questions that you might get from patients is whether they should have the same vaccine or whether they should have um, a different vaccine or does it matter? Um, so um, theoretically, uh, either should be fine, um, but um, this is uh, data from Singapore looking at um, people who received either the same, a homologous booster or a heterologous booster, so a different booster. Um, so what we can see is both for um, the top panel, Pfizer, so primary course of Pfizer, followed by either Pfizer or Moderna booster, and the bottom panel being Moderna primary, followed by Moderna or um, Pfizer booster. What you see is in both cases, um, the uh, actual risk of, um, of COVID-19, of, of developing COVID-19, symptomatic COVID-19, was reduced with the heterologous booster. Um, this isn't randomized controlled trial evidence, but certainly it shows that there's no harm to getting a heterologous booster, and there might even be a benefit to receiving a heterologous booster. So how many? So I know many of you are concerned, and I'm sure many of your patients are talking about how many boosters are we going to need? Uh, are we going to need a booster every four months? And how can we possibly maintain this? Uh, and this is obviously a concern. So Israel, who's far ahead of us in terms of um, how early they started their vaccination uh, program, um, had noted a waning of immunity with the third dose, with the booster. And so it started a fourth dose, particularly for higher risk, so people who are over age 60. And so this looks at um, the uh, risk of infection uh, in people who've had a um, fourth dose as compared to uh, people who have not had that fourth dose booster. Um, and what it demonstrates is that um, over time, you know, as your immunity develops after your fourth dose, um, your risk of uh, confirmed infection, well, the risk of confirmed infection in those who did not receive uh, the booster is uh, considerably higher, um, you know, two times, two and a half times higher uh, in those without a boost fourth dose as those uh, with a fourth dose indicating that particularly in higher risk um, um, individuals, the fourth dose uh, may be needed. But obviously this is not, um, this is a real challenge. We're already noting that we're having a challenge getting people boosted quickly. Uh, and so it's a, a, a gonna be difficult for us as a society to, to, to get everyone in for, um, for their 
fourth dose, you know, if we have to do that in four months from when we've gotten everyone boosted. It becomes an impossible situation where we're basically just chasing our tail. Um, so definitely people are looking at the next generation of vaccination. It's unclear how successful this would be, but certainly um, people are trying to find, first of all, universal COVID vaccines. So COVID vaccines that uh, uh, are to other parts of the um, COVID virus that mutates less, uh, so uh, likely outside of the spike protein. Uh, and so so um, this would be more resistant to uh, to mutations uh, and allow you know one one uh, vaccination potentially even to be enough. Um, another thing are mucosal COVID vaccines. So one of the challenges with COVID vaccination is that uh, you know immunity wanes, the circulating antibodies wane. Um, you know their their memory B cells, so they kick up into gear once you've been infected, but they don't prevent you from being infected as well as they did when you, you know, one or two months after you, uh, you received the uh, vaccination dose. Mucosal vaccines work uh, with your immune system in the actual mucosa. Um, you know, there are a number of examples of mucosal um, vaccines that act at the level of mucosa, um, particularly uh, the live attenuated polio vaccine. Uh, and this kind of is a generally thought of, would, would this would generally thought of would produce a better um, protection against transmission than the current um, jabs that we're giving. Now, whether something like this is possible with COVID is less clear, but this might help um, deal with the issue of transmission and waning immunity for transmission. And finally, in terms of next gen, I mean, this isn't next generation. This is just what we have to do to try to actually get things under control. That is to vaccinate the world because these variants are going to continue until we have uh, everyone in the world protected. And there's still over 3 billion people in the world that have not yet received a single uh, uh, dose of COVID vaccine. Um, well, one of the questions I was also asked to address was, is Omicron over? And certainly we've seen the, um, uh, the spike passed uh, and uh, in, in every, every place but WA, um, the spike of Omicron has passed uh, and uh, you know, our, our grocery shelves are now being adequately stocked in general. Um, um, and uh, the, the number of cases, the number of people uh, on furlough um, definitely decreasing. Uh, and we've seen this throughout the world, very rapid increase in Omicron and then a rapid decline. But one thing I, I think is important for everyone to understand is that, you know, Omicron isn't over. It's going to be some time before Omicron is over. And what do I mean by that? Well, you know, although we had a very steep slope on the way up and we have had a steep slope on the way down, we're now starting to see a change in the slopes. The slope's getting, getting um, less steep uh, and it's kind of um, prolonging the wave. Uh, and we may actually not just have a prolonged wave, we may actually have a plateau. So as we open up, as you know, the kids are getting back to school, as people are getting back to work, we may well see that the case numbers stay quite high. When we looked at what happened when we came out during the Delta wave, when we came out uh, in, um, in New South Wales, where they had a relatively low number of cases, they were able to maintain that for some time. In, in um, Victoria, where we came up with a high level of cases, the high level of cases continued because transmission continued. So it may well happen, uh, what may well happen with Omicron is as we open up, um, that even though the cases have come down, that there continues to be this grumbling Omicron wave that, that extends out over a long period of time. And that's important because 
Obviously, the disruption, the disease, the death that happens uh, at the peak is important, but actually the amount that happens is the area under the curve that matters. So extending it out means that you're going to get a substantially larger number of people um, who get quite ill, require hospitalization over time, uh, and, uh, and unfortunately die of COVID. So getting that slope steeper and getting the plateau lower, um, uh, really important in terms of protecting people in the healthcare system. There's also the risk of the second wave. So if we have a plateau that's a relatively high number of cases, it won't take much to get that case number considerably up. And although many people have had Omicron, not everyone has. And we know that uh, immunity, um, convalescent immunity, so immunity from having the disease, wanes over time as well. So one of the real concerns is as we go back inside, um, you know, as the weather gets worse, then suddenly if Omicron's still around, uh, which it, it likely will be, that we'll start to have surges and waves then. The next thing I think that uh, the final thing I think is important to think about is who is getting COVID and that's even though you have lower numbers what 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 matters in terms of hospitalization and uh, and death um, is actually who is getting COVID. Um, so just to, to talk about kind of that slope and the plateau, one of the things that's important to consider is uh, BA2, which is a variant um, that's related, that's part of the Omicron um, family, uh, and some of you may have heard this referred to as the son of Omicron. Well, it's not really the son of Omicron, because if you look at the phylogenetic tree, which is above, you see it has a common root to Omicron, but it's not really derived from over Omicron. It's derived from, you know, an uh, original virus that, that spread to both. So it really would be probably the, the, the bad cousin of Omicron would probably be a more um, appropriate way to, to phrase it. And um, you know, a few things about BA2. It lacks the S gene dropout. So one of the genetic changes in, um, in Omicron is that it has this S gene dropout. And the only important thing about that is it allows it to be easily tracked with the irregular PCR tests because you can see uh, whether there's an S gene dropout in the PCR test. So, you know, from a surveillance standpoint, it was really easy to see when Omicron came uh, and, uh, you know, you and started to take over from Delta. So it lacks this. So it's harder to identify uh, just quickly with a PCR test. You need actually full sequencing to identify BA2. So harder to track. Um, um, but it seems to be more infectious. And this is information from Denmark, which just shows over time um, the proportion of Omicron that's BA2 versus original Omicron. Uh, and you can see uh, over the course of uh, December to February, it's gone from being relatively infrequent to being the majority of Omicron cases. Um, and this is important because um, BA2 does appear to be more transmissible. So this is data also from Denmark that shows um, secondary infections in households. So it looks at the primary case and how frequently um, the um, household members become infected. Uh, you see Delta at the bottom, which we already thought was extremely infectious. Um, there's the, the number of uh, secondary infections. Uh, when you look at uh, BA1, that's the blue line, uh, number of secondary infections. So it's more transmissible within households than Delta. But when you look at BA2, it's even more transmissible than, um, than the original Omicron. And that just means if it's more transmissible, 
it's um, more, the, the, the spread is more likely as we open up when BA2, which is in Australia, starts to take over. It may well mean that you just have um, a prolonged uh, uh, transmission uh, and uh, elevated case numbers at that plateau just because you have a more transmissible virus now. So again, makes it really essential we get people boosted. So even though we may be over the crest of the wave of uh, Omicron, because uh, we don't want to plateau high, we want that slope to be much steeper because we want fewer people to need to be hospitalized to get sick, to potentially get long COVID, to um, you know, even die of the disease. We need to get that slope down by making sure everyone is boosted. Fortunately, BA2 does not appear to have any difference in vaccine effects, effectiveness. So we know Omicron is, a, is evasive, is immune, immune evasive, so our vaccines are slightly less effective against it, but that does not seem to be accentuated by BA2. It's about the same as regular Omicron, although these are early days in terms of understanding um, that aspect of, of BA2. So I talked about the other important thing about the Omicron wave and whether it's over is who it's affecting. And I think we've all seen what's happened in aged care uh, and it's all been fairly horrifying. Um, so we know that there are outbreaks in many aged care facilities and that many uh, aged care residents and staff are affected by it. Um, you know, we see that the total number of deaths since the start of the pandemic, 1600, which is lower than many places, but just in the first 42 days of 2022, uh, we know that there have been 652 days. So, you know, two th if you look at the pandemic to um, December 31st, 2021, um, you had about 950, 900 and some um, deaths from COVID just in the first 42 days of 2022, you've had 652. So it just shows you um, the magnitude change in, um, in, in death from COVID. And even though this is a milder um, disease, what you've seen is, you know, it's still serious and, and when it affects people that are at risk, um, you, you have, uh, can have a major effect. And part of this is also due to the failure to ensure that our aged care residents were vaccinated um, before, uh, before Omicron happened, were boosted before Omicron happened. Um, and this just looks at the um, doses administered and who they've been administered by. Um, and I think one of the important things is just to look uh, and focus in on this Christmas break. So we knew Omicron was coming. Um, the light blue are GPs, the dark blue are pharmacists. So Pharmacy, pharmacies, GPs continue to vaccinate even though it was the holidays, but the red line, the red bars are um, vaccination in aged care. And what you can see is there was a nice long holiday that the uh, private companies who were vaccinating people had um, that, uh, that left a number of our uh, aged care facilities at risk. So I think that there needs to be a radically different approach to how we vaccinate um, aged care in the future, uh, and that this should be incorporated into the normal vaccination programs. Uh, and uh, GPs need to be a huge part of this because I don't think this would, be ha would have happened if GPs had been in charge or, or um, controlling vaccination in aged care. And this is what's happened. So again, um, the wave of Omicron may have crested, but what we're seeing is it's now deeply into aged care. So whereas at the crest of the wave, uh, it was primarily young people um, that, uh, that, were, uh, that were transmitting, getting and transmitting COVID, now we see it in aged care and it's having uh, a major impact both in terms of staff furlough as well as, um, as, well as residents becoming quite ill, uh, requiring calling in of the um, Australian Defence Forces to assist. So a therapy. So briefly, um, we know that uh, it's a bit of a changed ballgame with Omicron in terms of the um, 
the antibody therapies that uh, many of them uh, are, are less effective with, um, with Omicron than with Delta, uh, although citrovimab remains so. So we now have the antivirals. Um, so Paxlovid and Legaviro, um, uh, so these are the, the Pfizer and the um, Merck um, products um, that kind of expand our ability to treat COVID and prevent um, uh, at-risk people uh, from serious consequences. So TGA approved January 20th. Now, the trials, um, you know, these were administered within five days. So with antivirals, it's important that they're, um, they're given very soon after people become symptomatic because you want to decrease viral replication so you can um, improve outcomes. They were for non-hospitalized patients, not on O2, uh, and the trials included non-vaccinated populations who had at least one risk factor for severe disease. They were on the Delta variant, uh, but unlikely to be variant-specific. So for um, uh, Paxlovid, you had the EPIC-HR trial, which showed an 88% relative risk reduction in terms of the primary endpoint, which is hospitalization or death from COVID. Um, now, so um, uh, Paxlovid is a combination of a protease inhibitor and a CYP3A inhibitor, so you know, commonly used uh, in HIV, uh, as well as the protease inhibitor. Um, now, the important thing to know about Paxlovid is it, it has a CYP3A inhibitor, which means it has interactions the size of my arm. So very important to remember drug-drug interactions with this medication. Um, dose reduction for renal impairment and not recommended for severe renal or hepatic impairment. So it's a bit of a tricky drug, um, but is extremely effective. Um, then there is uh, malnupiravir. So this inhibits viral replication through viral mutagenesis. Um, so it's also effective, although only a 30% relative risk reduction for the primary outcome of hospitalization or death, um, but uh, it does not have the kind of drug interactions that you have with Paxlovid. Uh, it should not be used in pregnant women. In fact, contraception is, is recommended for sexually active women of childbearing age for three months after using this, and contraception for sexually active men for three months after using this as well. Um, so we have these new treatments, and this is fantastic, a, a new thing to be able to offer our patients to protect them. Uh, but when are GPs going to get this? Well, unfortunately, they're gonna have to wait for the PBS listing. Um, so there's uh, you know, 800 doses, 800,000 doses in total, um, but unfortunately, not really much access to them. Um, there is access to uh, Legaviro in uh, aged care, so it's been distributed to residential aged care, recommended for mild to moderate COVID uh, to start no, longer, no later than five days after symptom onset. So the recommendations currently, remember these were tested on unvaccinated people, so how we apply them to the vaccinated is less clear, but the recommendations are that it be given to unvaccinated residents, those with immunosuppression or lack of immune competence, uh, and um, individuals who are higher aged and have, quote, multiple risk factors, end quote. So hopefully our supply will be coming in, although we're in short supply. So um, a few things I'll touch on briefly. First is keeping COVID safe. So obviously everyone is concerned about making sure that their offices are safe and that you reduce the risk of transmission from patients to you, from you to patients, and from staff to staff. So remember, COVID is primarily airborne. That's the main way it transmits, although proximity is still important. Uh, and so we need to focus on safe indoor air and using high quality, well-fitted masks, so respirators. 
So in terms of safe indoor air, the first thing that's important is to know whether you have safe indoor air. And so that requires a CO2 monitor. They're cheap, you can get them um, online. Uh, and you wanna measure, you wanna make sure you measure your office spaces with people in them, because obviously that's going to affect the CO2. Um, but you want an under 800 parts per meter um, uh, CO2 measurement. Um, if it's not that, with a full waiting room, say, you want to either remediate or ameliorate the situation. So if you have natural airflow, increase it. Uh, if you have a HIVAC system, so a heating um, uh, and air conditioning system, you want to consult with the person that, that uh, manages that for you, and you want to maximize outdoor air intake. If you can't improve it, uh, with these steps, you want to ameliorate it with HEPA filtration. So reducing the amount of, um, uh, this reduces the amount of circulating virus. So if somebody has COVID in, in your office, uh, you know, it's just going to be uh, taken out of the air more rapidly. Uh, and so then respirators. So if you're using a mask, use a respirator. So remember the attributes that inf influence the effectiveness of masks are its ability to filter, so it's filtration, and fit. So you don't want gaps at the sides that suck air in. And clearly N95 and P2 masks are superior in terms of this. Um, they're more expensive, but they can be reused. You can reuse them multiple times as long as the fit seems to be proper. Uh, importantly, the uh, ear loops might be more comfortable, but the bands have much better fit. So the ones with elastic bands around the back. So you can use them even if you're not fit tested, formally fit tested. It's effective even without fit testing, but obviously the best effect is going to be if you know the seal is right. Um, so for medical practitioners, I would recommend that you get formally fit tested. And um, this is available. It's, it's not free, but it is fairly cheap. And you know, you know which masks fit you and that's good for a lifetime. Unfortunately, this means you do have to shave your beard if you want these to be um, properly fitted. There are options for people with beards if you want to keep the beard, um, but um, obviously these masks don't fit over, over facial hair. So the one last thing that I've been asked to cover is when the pandemic is going to be over and what my thoughts are. Um, and, you know, we t hear a lot of talk about uh, COVID becoming endemic and the end of the pandemic when COVID becomes endemic. And so one of the questions is what exactly does endemic mean to you? And, and the definition isn't, um, you know, there, there are technical definitions, but I don't think that's the definition most people use. Uh, I think most people are talking about when they talk about endemic that COVID is here to stay and that we're learning to live with it. Uh, but I think it's important to remember that endemic, if that's your definition of endemic, it does not mean mild. Remember, malaria is an endemic disease. Um, so endemic does not mean mild. And the other thing that's important is COVID is never truly going to be an endemic disease because it comes in waves. So there's not going to be a, you know, we know every month we have 100 cases of COVID and it never increases from that. It's just at that rate, it's stable. It's always going to come in waves. So there's always going to be a potential for a disruption of society and an overwhelmed medical system unless we take the steps that we need to to manage it. Um, so there's a lot of talk about herd immunity, which is meaning that, you know, as long as you have enough people vaccinated, it prevents transmission, so it can essentially stop these, uh, um, these um, uh, widespread epidemics from happening. But the problem with COVID is that there's waning immunity, particularly for transmission. So stopping transmission may be impossible with this disease entirely. The other thing is new variants will be immune evasive. So that's the mechanism that they're going to have a growth advantage over other, um, other, other forms 
of COVID. So that's how the next one will get rid of COVID. It'll be more effective in terms of being immune evasive. Um, so um, so that, that's a challenge if, if our main path to immunity is vaccination. Um, and uh, or, or even our main path to herd immunity would be everyone getting uh, Omicron because that will wane and the next variant will be more able to um, evade it. And finally, transmissibility and virulence are not inversely correlated, meaning just because if, if, a, if a variant is more transmissible, it doesn't mean that the mutations that make it more transmissible will make it milder. So that's a common, common thought that people have. But because COVID spreads before people even become symptomatic and spreads when people are, are fairly well with the disease uh, and uh, you know people get sick with disease after seven days, so they've had plenty of time to spread it all around. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it, it, it's fairly random whether the mutations that make um, a variant more transmissible also would make it um, less virulent. So we saw with alpha and with delta, both more transmissible, both more virulent. Now we see with Omicron, more transmissible, but less virulent. So we can't count on, on the next variant being less virulent. But not to be a total downer at the end of this, we have many more tools. We know how COVID transmits, we have effective vaccines, and we have effective treatments. So we're in a much better uh, situation than we were in early 2020 when um, this virus was first discovered. But importantly, to live with COVID means we can't ignore COVID. We need to both um, uh, mitigate the impact of COVID right now. We need to reduce transmission, so things like boosters, safe indoor air, wearing well-fitted, um, uh, uh, well-filtering masks, um, and, um, and preparing, being prepared for the next wave when and likely if it comes. So finally, one thing I want to do is to say um, thank you very much to all the GPs out there. Every time I hear someone announce, uh, and we're changing this, you're going to be uh, talking to your GP or calling your GP uh, if you've got these symptoms instead of what we used to do, um, you know, particularly with the big wave of Omicron, or we're sending you to GPs to get this or that done. I always cringe inside because I know that GPs are already extremely busy and they likely haven't been effectively consulted uh, when these changes are made. So I just really want to thank all of you for everything you've done during the pandemic. It really has. Um, helped everyone get through in a safe way. Uh, and um, I hope that you are all doing okay, because I know this has had a huge impact on all of you. Um, and although I think we've got some time to go before the, the pandemic's in our rear view mirror, uh, I think we are kind of moving forward and, and um, things will be better. Uh, and in the, after the first quarter of 2022, things will be better. And hopefully um, uh, things will never be this bad again. Thank you. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.